Father, we do pray that um, this psalm that we have just sung, that is that, that the glory would not come to us, but to your name alone be praised. Lord, may all of our lives be um, a sacrifice of praise to you, that we would uh, deflect any glory that comes our way to you, recognizing that you are the source of all that is good. And um, we pray that you would teach us how to do that within the context of uh, our relationships here at church and, and out with the public and uh, use this passage that we look at tonight to help us in that way. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Tonight, um, you get a bonus verse. We're going to move into chapter 11, verse 1, which uh, really is the end of the paragraph that Paul is writing. There's actually two paragraphs that we're going to look at. Um, so we're going to add chapter 11, verse 1, which is different from your schedule, but um, I think you'll see how it fits in with the rest of the text. One of the problems um, in churches today, and one that I think has become a big problem, is uh, lack of discernment, lack of spiritual discernment. That is, a Christian who's not taught to be discerning um, they, they don't understand the reasons why various rules are set in place. And so they either lean heavily on those rules, uh, which, and, and they do so uh, thinking that ignoring those rules, okay, let's say extra-biblical rules, uh, would be sin. Or the other extreme is to, to go to the antinomian position, which is anti-law, no law. Um, and that is that, that there are no laws at all. I can just live however I please. So on one hand, you have this legalism, and on the other hand, you have this no law position. And I think both of those are dangerous, and I think both of them stem from the main problem, which is that we have uh, set up a whole list or system of expectations as to how Christians should live. So that when it comes to a question about... Um, my life, my Christian life. Well, I go ask somebody else, right? I go ask another Christian. You know, usually it's a pastor. What, what am I supposed to believe about this? And I don't want to minimize the importance of sound um, counsel and the multitude. There is much wisdom in the multitude of counselors. I understand that, and I don't want to minimize that. But I think um, sometimes we can use... Uh, other people as a crutch because we don't want to think through the issue ourselves. Um, so the question comes, and again, I, I, I don't want to um, keep you from ever asking questions again, but, but the questions come, you know, Pastor, should I, should I do this? Should I drink? Should I play cards? Should I wear pants? Should I hang out with those who do? I mean, who, who has the answers to these questions? Um, and, and, and so... On the one side, there is no thought about my actions and how they affect others. And on the other side, there's no thought about the actions and how they affect others either. That is, I hold shamelessly to my rules, my set of rules, because I've seen other people hold to them, even though I don't understand why, or I don't see any biblical foundation for them. And on the other hand, I don't, I don't care about how I live at all, so I just do whatever I want. And both of those, I think, are dangerous. And I would suggest to you that there's a more biblical approach 
that is helpful both for you spiritually and for others around you who are affected by your actions and your decisions. And, and that more biblical approach is that we learn to be discerning individuals. That each of us has the Spirit of God living in us by virtue of the regeneration that happened. Um, the, the unilateral work of God where He transformed us from a child of Satan effectively to a child of God. And, and, and because the Holy Spirit lives in us, we have the ability to be spiritually discerning. But it, ta- it takes work. We can't just say, okay, download all the information about everything that I need to know. It takes work. We have to look at the Scriptures. We have to think about its implications. And in the church of Corinth, we had, uh, or Paul had really this kind of mix of former law keepers, we could call them legalists, and we have some former antinomian Gentiles, that is, people who don't care about how they live, they just do whatever. And so now they come together in this congregation, and Paul has to handle this complex societal issue and try to help them to navigate through the waters of conflict. And how is he supposed to do that? And, and what he does here at the end of chapter 10 is he's going to show them the example of Christ. That if we are going to be using our minds properly, then we are going to use them in a discerning way which recognizes that every action that I take has an effect on other people. So, so whether I hold on to these rules as if these are Bible, even though they're not, or I eliminate all rules, including ones that are in the Bible, both of those decisions have effects on others. And, and what we need to see is that um, we need to be willing to, to do the work of discernment, of learning to be discerning, and we need to be willing to give up personal rights when necessary uh, in order to advance the spiritual well-being of another. And so I hope that the Spirit will use this passage to remind you of the great position that you have before God as His ambassador. Let me um, adjust my screen here. I need to be able to use the PowerPoint as well. All right, so let me read our text for us beginning in verse 23. This is the Word of God. All things are lawful, but not all things are profitable. All things are lawful, but not all things edify. Let no one seek his own good, but that of his neighbor. Eat anything that is sold in the meat market without asking questions for conscience' sake. For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains. If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that is set before you without asking questions for conscience' sake. But if anyone says to you, This is meat sacrificed to idols. Do not eat it. For the sake of the one who informed you, and for conscience' sake. I mean, not your own conscience, but the other man's. For why is my freedom judged by another man's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I slandered concerning that for which I give thanks? Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks, or to the church of God, just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many, so that they may be saved. Be imitators of me, just as I also am of Christ. 
So here we see that we must glorify God by using personal rights for the sake of another's spiritual well-being. We must glorify God by using, or I would say giving up, personal rights for the sake of another's spiritual well-being. This is a, a theme that Paul's already hit on before. He's saying you, need, you have personal rights, you have personal liberties, freedoms in Christ, but you need to consider how that's going to affect someone else. You need to consider how it might cause someone else to stumble. And, and Paul's going to make a similar point, but to, I think, a different group of people. Instead of primarily to weak-conscienced believers, he's going to say that, that it's going to be actually unbelievers. Your decisions affect how unbelievers think about what is true and what is right. Your decisions actually affect their conscience. All right, so let's take a look at this main part. We must glorify God. And I think you know where I got that from. That's from verse 31. Whether then you eat or drink or whatever you do, to all to the glory of God. So I think what Paul does here at the end of the passage, verses 31 through chapter 11, verse 1, is he gives a general principle for how we ought to live. So what he's going to start with is, in verse 23, he's going to give some specific principles as to how we are to uh, engage with the culture even though they have different views on meat. And then he's going to finish up, which is where we're starting, with this general principle, which is no matter what you do, do it to glorify God. Glorify God in everything. Here we have one of the most famous verses among Christians, do all to the glory of God, and I think rightfully so. But sometimes I think we use it like a cliché. Um you know, I'm not going to take that job because it's not glorifying to God, or I won't listen to that music because it's not glorifying to God, or I only listen to that music because it is glorifying to God. And we might be right in all those statements, but, but what is it that makes something glorifying to God? And we don't want to just use cliches to use cliches. What makes something glorifying to God? And what makes one thing honoring to God and something else dishonoring? And I think this passage helps to answer that question. Most simply... Glorifying God is doing what is consistent with His will or with His desires. Doing something that will honor Him. That's what glorify means. Something that's going to honor Him. So, no matter what you do, it should be done to glorify God. In other words, if there is something that does not bring glory to God, okay, if there's something just very clear we know it doesn't honor God, then it should not be a part of whatever you do. Right? So, here's what glorifying God looks like in this passage. It is seeking the spiritual well-being of another person. It's glorifying God in this passage is seeking the spiritual well-being of another person. And, and what we're going to see is that their spiritual well-being is more important than my personal rights. That is, we have personal rights. That is a truth that we have in Christ, that Christ has freed us from the law. We're not bound by it. We don't have to do those things, those things in the Old Testament in order to be accepted by God, right? Uh, Christ has done everything that we need in order to be accepted by God. So we have freedoms to do various things. However, those freedoms are not important in my brother's spiritual well-being. So remember, remember back in chapter um, 8, I think it was, that, that we said that I will give up my personal rights for the sake of of my, spirit, my brother's spiritual well-being. Well, here we have a similar idea. 
That's what I think it means to glorify God in this passage. Notice the result uh, that we should be aiming at, same result that God and Paul were aiming at at the end of verse 33, so that they may be saved. So there's some way that we can live and make right choices with regard to our personal rights and freedoms that will actually help or lead someone to be saved, that will um, not prevent them from being saved. Look back at chapter 9, verse 22, and notice Paul's kind of motto that he lives by. He says at the end of the verse, I have become all things to all men so that I I may by all means save some. So here's Paul's goal. goal. He's going to to adapt in various situations so that he accomplishes his goal, which is to glorify God by seeing some people saved. Notice the method in verses 32 and 33. The method of glorifying God is avoiding offense. Paul gives two main categories of people here. He says to the Jew and then to the Gentile, but then he adds this third one that kind of overlaps with both of them. That is, if you want to break up all of humanity back at the time of Paul or now, you could say that there are Jews and there are Gentiles, those who are Jews and those who are not Jews. Okay? And, and, and then Paul says, and I also don't want to give offense to the church of God. Now, the church of God could be made up of either a Jew or a Gentile, so that's why I say there's some overlap. But, but his point is that, that to the Jews, remember in chapter 9, to the Jews, I was like a Jew. Verse 20, chapter 9, verse 20, to the Jews, I became as a Jew so that I might win the Jews. And then verse 21 talks about the Gentiles, to those who are without the law as without the law. That's how I became, so as to win those without the law. And then verse 22, I think this is where he's making the connection between the weak and the church. He's saying, to the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I become all things to all men. Paul was like a loving brother that that was desiring to edify them. So notice his, his rubric by which he lives in verse 32 of chapter 10, give no offense either to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. So I want to win these people. I, I want to see these people come to Christ. I want to see... Believers who are weak become strong. And so I'm not going to give any offense to them. Verse 33, Just as I also please all men in all things, not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many. So there in verse 33, he's not saying that my job in life or my goal in life is to be a people pleaser primarily, but but rather that he pleases people in the sense that he works hard not to cause offense to them. He doesn't want to get anything in the way between them and God, between them and salvation. He he doesn't want to, as chapter 8 talked about, be a stumbling block that would cause someone to fall away. You see, Paul is driven not by what satisfies him most, but but by what is most profitable for someone else. That's the word he uses there in verse 33. Not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many. How much different would your life and mine be if if we were always contemplating how our actions and decisions were affecting the spiritual well-being of other people? Rather than my first thought is when I get home, what can I do to satisfy myself? Or when I go out in the morning, what can I do to make myself most happy today? What if our thought was, 
How are my actions today going to affect the spiritual well-being of someone else? And then change our lives around it. That's what glorifying God looks like in this passage. It is avoiding offense. It's, it's considering someone else's needs as more important than my own. Finally, the means of glorifying God, chapter 11, verse 1. It is by following Paul's example, example who was following the example of Christ. So Paul's working to do whatever is best for the sake of the gospel. And Paul's saying, listen, my motive and my motto, that is, I, I'm all things to all men, that motto does not come from me. I, I do not make up these things. Instead, he learned it from Christ. Notice the two words in verse 33 of chapter 10. Not seeking my own profit, but the profit of the many. So that word seeking, so that they may be saved. So those two words, seek and save, come likely from Luke chapter 19, verse 10, which says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save those who are lost. And Paul's adopting that kind of mentality Even if he's not thinking specifically of that verse, he's still adopting that kind of mentality. I'm going to go to the lost with a view of searching them out, seeking, and seeing them saved by the power of God. That's what Jesus did. And and if I need to give up my personal freedoms to do that, so be it. Because their salvation is more important than me being able to exercise my freedoms. Isn't that how Jesus lived? I mean, in one sense, Christ had the freedom to save himself from death on the cross. But he accepted death in order to do the greatest good for others, which was their salvation. He's willing to give up his personal freedom in order to save others. So, we glorify God by following Christ and Paul in seeking the salvation of the lost, and we seek the salvation of the lost by avoiding offense. So that's the kind of the general principle. Nothing probably new in there that, that we haven't heard before and probably not going to be not anything new in the previous passage either. But, but here he drives down to something more specific, the driving principle by which he lives in verses 23. So let's move back up to, to the beginning of the passage. And here we see that we must seek the good of others by using discretion regarding our personal rights, verses 23 and 24. Seek the good of others by using discretion discretion regarding your personal rights. Say discernment, you know, like that word I was using at the beginning. In verse 23, we see that just because we have personal rights doesn't mean we should use them. Here's the statement that Paul had already addressed, which seems to be a quotation from them. It was a slogan that they were using. Notice the statement, that Paul repeats two times in verse 23. All things are lawful. We're free, Paul. We can do whatever we want in Christ. Now, he's not saying... uh, I don't think the the Corinthians were saying that they could sin, but they were basically saying, it doesn't matter if I eat meat, sacrifice to idols. I know that I'm free in that. Paul's going to, to counter that argument. There is some truth in it. In fact, What Paul does not do is he does not say, no, you're wrong. That's not true. There are some things that are not lawful. I think Paul actually agrees with them that they are free in Christ. But he wants to see 
them to see what we need to see, and that is that there are a hierarchy of principles when it comes to our following of God. Yes, we have freedom in Christ, but that is not as important as my brother's spiritual well-being or for the spiritual well-being of an unbeliever. Notice how Paul states it in verse 23. He counters their slogan, all things are lawful, with two of his own. But not all things are profitable. And then the end of the verse, but not all things edify. And then he goes on in verse 24, let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. You see, Christian freedom does not mean freedom to do whatever I want, even if what I want is not prohibited in Scripture. Okay, so again, let's go back to the example that's, that Paul's using, meat, eating meat sacrificed to idol. Anything inherently sinful and eating meat sacrificed to idols. Inherently sinful. Nothing. All foods are clean. We know that they're all from God. Is that, in fact, that's what he's going to say in verses 25 and 26. So, there's something that you are free to do, but it doesn't fit into these categories. Profitable, profitability, verse 23, and edification. So, so there's something more important than your rights, your freedom. It, is it profitable for someone else if they were to see you eat that meat? And does it edify them? So we need to live by this kind of standard. That is, what is my neighbor's good? Verse 24, let no one seek his own good but that of his neighbor. You see, our, our actions and decisions are bound by a higher principle than a principle simply to engage in certain freedoms. In this case, the higher principle is love. Love for my brother. Love for the non-believing friend. I don't want to do anything that would cause them to turn farther away from Christ or to turn away from Christ. You see, freedom is not about freedom to do what is best for me. It's freedom to do what is best for my neighbor. So there's kind of the driving principle. The overall general principle is glorify God by avoiding offense. And the driving principle is I'm going to seek the good of other people by using discernment uh, with regard to my personal rights. So that means that in some cases... In some cases, you should use your rights. In some cases, you should use your rights rather than investigate more deeply. That's what he talks about in verses 25 through 27. Here, Paul gives an example of how to seek the good of others with the use of your personal rights. So, he gives two examples. First, in the butcher shop. Second, at a non-Christian's home. Okay, so first, at the butcher shop, verses 25 and 26. He says, suppose you go to a butcher shop and you have read the news reports about how this guy is buying meat from a pagan temple, which means that the meat that you're going to buy from him most likely will have already been sacrificed to a false god. What do you do? And Paul's response is, don't ask any questions. Just buy it, give thanks for it, eat it. You haven't sinned. You have the freedom to eat that meat. Why? Even if it were sacrificed to idols, Paul, well, Paul, Paul knows, and the Christians should know, that those idols mean nothing. So if nobody says anything about it, you walk into the butcher shop, he doesn't say anything about it, buy the meat, take it home, give thanks for it, and eat it. 
and notice how he um, he he um, supports his point there that there is nothing inherently sinful with eating meat sacrificed to idols. In verse 26, he says, "For the earth is the Lord's and all it contains." So he, here he's quoting from Psalm 24:1 and saying, "We have an inheritance in God." that He has allowed us, He has gifted to us the creation so that we have been given all things richly to enjoy. So that something like this, meat, sacrifice to idols, is actually a gift from God. It's not prohibited by God. In fact, Paul makes it clear that it's allowed. Jesus had already talked about it. It's not the food that goes into your mouth that causes you to be um, evil, right? It's, it's what comes out of your heart. That corrupts you. And then, of course, you have the famous um, dream with Peter. Remember the sheep being dropped down three times with the unclean animal? No way, Lord. I cannot do that. And he says, yes, Peter, take and eat. Don't say it is unclean what I have called clean. And so now we're getting into a little bit stickier of an issue. Not just it's unclean meat, but, but what if it were unclean meat that were actually sacrificed to the idol? And Paul says, don't ask any questions. When you go to the butcher shop. All of that belongs to God. And so take it and enjoy it. Give thanks to God for it and eat it with a clean conscience. The second example that he gives is in a non-Christian's home. In verse 27, he says, If one of the unbelievers invites you and you want to go, eat anything that's set before you without asking questions for conscience sake. Same idea. You go over to someone else's house and they may or may not have sacrificed that meat to idols, or they may have purchased it from someone else who already sacrificed it to idols. Don't ask any questions. Just give thanks to God for it audibly or internally and eat the meat to the glory of God. Now, if you're like me, this this um, rubs on you a little bit the wrong way, doesn't it? Because our instinct would be, if I was in that situation in an unbeliever's home where I had a, a hunch that this meat was sacrificed to idols, I would want to investigate more deeply. The, the um, over-scrupulous, hyper-spiritual part of me wants to say, are we sure this is clean? Are we sure that this has not been offered to any false gods? And Paul says, don't do that. Don't ask any questions. Just eat it. Why? Well, he doesn't tell specifically why until later. It seems like he's going to say, for their conscience sake. Not for your conscience sake, but for theirs. Notice, um, we'll get to this in just a second, but at the end of verse 28, do not eat it for the sake of one who informed you, and for conscience sake, I mean not your own conscience, but the other man's. So it seems like he's concerned about the unbeliever's conscience, which I'm going to argue that that includes at least unbelievers in verse 28. So, he seems to be concerned about unbelievers' conscience. So, when I go and ask him about the meat that sacrificed the idols, and I say, hey, just a quick question before we eat. Is this sacrificed to idols? Because if it is, I can't eat it. How do you think that might come across to an, unbelievers who, an unbeliever who's contemplating the things of God? What do you think? Okay? How do unbelievers tend to look at Christians in general? Right? They, they have all these restrictions. And now they're coming into my house asking questions about meat? 
Now, now there is a situation when, and we'll get to it in just a second, when you do find out that it's sacrificed to idols, that you can eat it, because otherwise you might be condoning their idea that, that the idols are okay. But, but in this case, if nobody says anything, Paul says don't ask. Remember, eating the meat doesn't make you a sinner. Recognize that you can eat this in good conscience. So in some cases, use your rights. We have these freedoms, and it, how do my freedoms in this case... You know, I, I might be more inclined to withhold my freedoms in this case, right? I, I don't even want to use my freedom to eat this meat because I don't want to sin, or I don't want to look bad to them. That might be our inclination, but Paul's saying, in this case, use your freedom... For the sake of that unbeliever. Okay, now, the final, uh, the final point he makes here in verses 28 to 30 is, in other cases, you should give up your rights in order to avoid offense. So in some cases, use your rights um, instead of investigating more deeply. But in other cases, you should give up your rights in order to avoid offense. And that's what he says in verses 28 through 30. So first, we must um, protect our friend's conscience. And I'm just going to keep it generic as friends because I think it could include both a weak conscience believer and an unbeliever, or we say or, either or. But notice, before we get into that, notice what's at stake here. If you eat meat when you have been clearly informed that it's sacrificed to idols, then you will actually do damage to someone else's conscience. Notice verse 29. I mean not... uh, Let's look at the end of verse 28 again. Do not eat for the sake of the one who informed you and for conscience sake. I mean not your own conscience, but the other man. So you know in your conscience you're free to eat meat. You're free to eat any meat. But for the sake of their conscience, you don't want to harm their conscience. You don't want them to go against their conscience. And, And I would suggest to you that this is... could be referring to a weak believer... You know, we don't want to sear his conscience like in chapter 8. We don't want to cause a stumbling block that would say, hey, I guess I can just do this even though my conscience is telling me no. I'm just going to do it anyway. And then he could plunge himself into destruction. Or um, or it could be talking about an unbeliever. It seems like in the context, Paul is talking about an unbeliever, right? He's talking about a butcher shop, which he doesn't mention whether the butcher's a believer and unbeliever. But in, in verses uh, 27, verse 27, he says, if an unbeliever invites you to his house. So he's clearly talking about an unbeliever there. And, and if that's the case, if he's talking about an unbeliever in verses 28 through 30, then, then why should we ever be concerned about an unbeliever's conscience? Right? An unbeliever's conscience is not sanctified. And I think the point is, is that we can actually wound the conscience even of an unbeliever by disregarding them in our decision-making. And we can, in the process, confirm for them that idols do have some substance. You know, I know you told me that that was sacrificed to idols, but I'm just going to eat it anyway. And in that case, then the unbeliever says, well, I guess... Serving their God is a lot like serving my God. Or, you know, we could serve multiple gods and we're okay. He doesn't have any problem with it. So, we should give up our rights in that case in order to avoid offense. I need to protect our friend's conscience, whether it's a believer, a weak conscience to believer, or an unbeliever. 
And then uh, in verses, the last part of verse 29 through 30, we see that we must protect our personal freedom. Protect our personal freedom. Paul uses two questions here. And he wants to show that, that we need to recognize what personal rights we have as a Christian and then use them or refrain from using them in a way that avoids conflict. So notice this first question, verse 29, at the end of the verse, it reads, For why is my freedom judged by another's conscience? So if I have personal rights, having been bought by Christ, having become part of His family, if I have personal rights, then why should I cause conflicts with how I use them or don't use them. In other words, why should I ignore my personal rights or how I use them in order to create conflict? If I can't avoid conflict by how I use my personal rights, then what good are they? Are my personal rights just meant for me to feel better about myself or to live in a way that's more satisfying to myself? The reason that we have these freedoms is so that we can use them to help avoid conflict, particularly in the lives of others. So we recognize those rights. The second question, Paul wants us to see that we should recognize what is good and accept it with joy and give thanks for it. So is this meat, sacrificed to idols, good or at least morally neutral? And if so, can I accept it and give thanks for it? Can I have joy when I eat that steak? Remember where that comes from? Verse 26. For the earth is the Lord and all it contains, including the meat. So if I can eat this meat, give thanks for it, then, then that, will, that will not go against my conscience in any way. Don't let other people put you under the yoke of legalism. Say, hey, you can't do that. So how do we know? How do we know how to use our rights? I mean, when should we use our rights and when should we give up our rights? And again, the, the cliche answer is, whichever one glorifies God the most. That's how we use our rights. Okay, but, but to be more specific, to show us what that glorifying God looks like in this passage, it is to, what is it that is is for the greater spiritual well-being of another. So this person that I'm going to come in contact, that I'm going to be eating with, which one serves their spiritual well-being better? Me engaging in my rights, using my freedom, or refraining from it? That's why I say it, it, it actually would transform our lives the way that we live if we actually asked these kinds of questions before we did things. Rather than thinking, you know what, I'm just going to do it, I don't... Some of us are so concerned with what everybody else thinks. Others of us are just like, I'm just going to do it. I don't care what people think. And the point is that we must think about how our decisions, how our actions are going to affect others. So let me give you two principles in the application, then I'll open it up for open it up for questions if you have any. Number one. Here's here's a big the big duh for tonight, okay? People get offended. People are offended 
uh, because of a variety of issues. Everyone has different backgrounds. Everybody comes from different circumstances. And this is just the nature of life, right? We even ourselves get offended over certain things that when we think about it, we're like, why am I getting so uptight about something like that? The fact is we just grow up developing personal pet peeves just because, you know, our parents didn't like those things. Or our parents told, those, told us those things were evil, even if they weren't. And as a result, sometimes we build fences against things that um, are actually okay. They're allowed. And, and as a result, I think unbelievers often misunderstand what Christianity is all about. They think, and sometimes it's just because they, don't, they haven't researched enough, they haven't read the Scriptures, um, they haven't tried to taste and see that the Lord is good, but in other cases, I think it's, it's, it's because we have given a wrong impression that Christianity is all about rules and regulations. It's, it's about having a stick just straight up my spine and just always being straight and uptight and I can never, you know, um, never be bothered by anything. And so, as a result... You know, we, ha- we have to think carefully about how our actions, our words, our decisions are going to affect other people. And that's going to mean that when we're at church, when we're in the home of anybody, when we're in the marketplace, we're going to have some eggshell walking to do. We have to be careful because someone might see what we're doing and mis- misrepresent it. Now, if they've just done it because they've seen it the wrong way, that's that's a different issue. But if we've, if we've just carelessly taken on this issue and um, and misled people, then that's our problem. So first, just recognize that people are offended. Secondly, use or refrain from using your personal rights to avoid offense. This, I think, is the main point. This is the main way that we glorify God in this passage. We use or refrain from using our personal rights um, in a way that's that's going to avoid offense. So, Think about it this way. You have freedoms in Christ of various things that you can do. But before you do any of those things, first consider how is that going to affect others? So if I engage in this activity, how is this going to affect my brother who thinks, okay, this goes back to chapter 8, my brother who thinks that this is a sin? Is he now going to say that it's okay for him to do it even though his conscience disallows it? See, I could actually cause a stumbling block for my brother. Before I engage in one of my freedoms or use one of my freedoms, think about how this is going to affect an unbeliever who's watching. Or if I decide to refrain from doing it, say, you know what, I can't do any of those things or to try to investigate more deeply. Think about that before... Think about the, how that's going to affect others before we do that. All right, and that leads to our application, which is, in order to do this, then you need to know your personal rights. What is it that you are free to do, and what are the things that you're not free to do? Okay, so when I say we have freedom in Christ, it doesn't mean just go out and commit immorality. We don't have freedom to commit immorality. We don't have freedom to violate any of the laws of Scripture. When I say laws, I'm talking primarily the New Testament laws that are designed for the church. Okay, 
We don't have freedom to disobey God. Let's say it that way. Okay, so that's not what I'm talking about. But outside of those prohibitions in the Scriptures, we are free to enjoy lots of things. Right? We're, we're free to go on vacation. We're free to enjoy um, a double fat latte, if that's a thing. Okay? We're free to enjoy all those things. Um, but what is it that we're free to do? That's a good question to ask. And this, I think, is where discernment comes in. This is where we have tended to punt as individuals. We go, well, let me go ask somebody about that. So, Pastor, am I free to do this? And discernment is actually one of the most valuable tools that you can have. It doesn't mean that you become independent. It doesn't mean that you're, you don't seek wise counsel. So don't hear me say that. But, but think about it with regard to a teenager. I mean, what's more valuable for a teenager? To give him a list of instructions or maybe one specific instruction. If you ever have a problem, call me. Talk to me. I'll help you. Okay, that, that might be a good thing to say, just a general principle, but what happens when the phone's broken? What happens when the car breaks down out in the middle of nowhere and dad can't be called? Isn't a little discernment helpful in that situation? Right? Isn't it helpful that he has some comprehension of what the next step I ought to do? Okay, The car's broken down. Maybe I ought to figure out what's wrong with it. Or if I broke down in the city of Detroit, maybe I need to figure out how to get to a place of refuge and then get a hold of my parents. Whatever the case, there, there's some discernment that has to come into play. Rather than just giving them a list of rules, Okay, we're, we're teaching them how to be discerned. I think as Christians we're wise to, to learn discernment as well. So as a Christian, if your primary goal is to honor God by seeking the good of others, and, and you seek the good of others by avoiding offense, then what are your personal rights? What are the things that in some cases you need to hold back in some cases to engage in for the sake of someone else's spiritual well-being? So I'm going to throw some, some out here and this is a mixture of things that we may be allowed to do and some that we may not. See if you can use some discernment. You don't have to answer them out loud. I'm just going to throw them out there. Okay, are you free to use face cards when you're invited to an unbeliever's house and they want to play a game? I said, don't answer. This is a... Oh, okay. You're free. Uh, Jack, Queen, King. Playing cards, yeah. Um, are you free to skip Sunday services once a month to be involved in a bowling tournament? Are you free to go to the movies? Ladies, are you free to wear pants to church? I'm not trying to adjust the rules here. I'm not trying to, to just throw off everything, you know, our, our culture or anything like that. I'm not saying that. That's why I said some of these we should do and some of these we shouldn't. But, but, the, but the fact is, is there, there are just thousands of these kinds of questions, aren't there? What is it that we're, we are free to do? What is it that we are restricted from doing? That's a good place to start. That requires... Discernment. So find out what freedoms you have. Use discernment in how you use those freedoms or how you refrain from using them. And in everything, always, always, always consider how your action, how your decision is going to affect someone else. 
I mean, that's the mark of spiritual maturity. That I'm living my life not for myself, but how is this going to affect someone else? I'm not just going to just speak off the cuff. I'm not just going to throw out, you know, i got to get all this information out, or I'm just going to do what I want to do. Instead, I'm going to say, okay, I'm going to take a second think about this. How does this affect the spiritual well-being of someone else? And, and I say it's a mark of spiritual maturity because Hebrews 10 calls us to do this kind of thing. It says um, that, that we should consider how to provoke one another to love and good works. So that is that before I come to... Okay, I've, I've moved the application now from unbelievers to believers, but, but you get my point. Before we come to a, a, a meeting with other believers, we ought to think about, okay, what is it that I can do to help advance this person spiritually? How, how is it that I can supply what is lacking in their faith? Not that I'm overly spiritual or anything like that, but, but what is it that I can do to encourage them? That's a good word, encourage, edify. Right, what can I do that would be profitable for them? Sometimes it's simple things like just showing up, right? Just showing them that you care and that you're committed to the same God that they are. When they're kind of wondering, you know, should I continue on in the Christian faith? And you show up again on Sunday and say, look at this faithful person, this faithful family. It just keeps coming time after time. Even when it's hard, even when, when there's um, difficulties going on, even when, um, you know, the weather's bad or anything, whatever. We we can fill in the blank. But but the point is, is that that we seek to advance the spiritual well-being of other people. We're considering that's the mark of that's one of the marks I should say of spiritual maturity. And and doing that with unbelievers is equally as important. But we're saying, okay, how is this going to affect them? Okay, if I, if I dig too deeply in asking questions, it'll it might come across the wrong way investigate too deeply and now you know he may be turned off to the things of God but if he tells me that this is clearly something that would you know that would violate his conscience then then maybe I need to to stand up and and not take part in that freedom friends this is love this is considering someone else as more important than myself and this is what Christ did all right I know that's kind of some heavy waters tonight, heavy treading. So, do you have any thoughts or questions, Bob?